Today we continue in our series in Luke. We are in Luke 14, if you'd like to turn there. Last week I opened the message with a discussion about the value of expositional preaching, which is preaching carefully through an entire book of the Bible. And uh, somebody sent me a little devotion via email that they read during the week. I didn't ask them permission to say their name, so I won't say it. But um, I wanted to read what they sent because it was an encouragement to me. And I think, I think it's worth sharing. So this was a, kind of one of those daily devotions that you get in your email. You ever seen those? And it's just a little, a little thing that I wanted to share. So, according to a new study by Gallup, the hottest thing at church today is not the worship and not the pastor. It's not the smoke and lights and it's not the hip and relevant youth programs. It's not even the organic fair trade coffee at the cafe. The hottest thing at church today is preaching. Not only is it the preaching, but a very specific form of it, preaching based on the Bible. Praise God, but please don't jump on the bandwagon. The last thing we need is a bunch of preachers responding to this poll by suddenly ditching their series on seven keys to successful relationships (laughs) or secrets to a happy home to dabble in biblical exposition. What we need is for preachers to search the scripture than to commit to biblical exposition. This next section is called Pragmatism Dies Hard. Pragmatism means doing... How do you explain pragmatism? If the ends justify the means is what pragmatism is. For decades, the Western church has been dominated by the church growth movement. A movement that drew heavily from the business principles of pragmatism. Pragmatism insists that the end justifies the means. It demands that we establish goals, determine the best means to achieve those goals, then assume that success proves that both the goal and the means are good. As one of the fathers of church growth said, never criticize what God is blessing. According to pragmatism, there is no distinction between what works and what is experiencing God's hand of blessing. One proves the other. The church growth movement established the goal of having as many people as possible profess faith in Jesus Christ. To do this, it would need to make church attractive to unbelievers. This demanded changing the services to make them seeker-friendly, changing the music to make it more contemporary, and even changing the gospel to make it less offensive. Of course, it also demanded changing the preaching to make it more palatable, and that meant preaching themes and principles rather than preaching the Bible itself. Pragmatism is so ingrained in the very fabric of the church today that it is extremely difficult to root out. Churches that have been immersed in it have to battle tooth and nail against its seductions. They need to retrain themselves to to look not at what appears to work, but to what the Bible demands. So, the next section is what God's people want and need. 
it should come as no surprise that God's people want God's word. A baby wants nothing more than its mother's milk because he needs nothing more than his mother's milk. A Christian wants nothing more than God's word because there is nothing he needs more than God's word. The Christian may not know it or be able to verbalize it any more than the baby can, but within every true believer will be a deep hunger to be fed by spiritual food, food that is found only in the word of God. Those churches that committed to preaching endless series of sermonettes for Christianettes were starving their people. They were starving sheep in order to entertain goats. Ooh, I love that line. They were starving sheep in order to entertain the goats. Here's the thing. Eventually, Gallup or Barna or someone else will come up with a new poll that will display new results and mere, ba- and mere bandwagoners will veer to this new course. Their deep-rooted pragmatism will drive them to the next big thing. But people who are convinced from the Bible that there is nothing better than to preach the Bible will stay the course. Even when Bible-based preaching is the very last thing people want, these pastors will know it is the very first thing that they need. It is my prayer and my calling that that would be true about me as your pastor. But it is nice every so often to have a sermon about the seven L's of husband hunting. It is good. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to have creme brulee, is it? Just can't have creme brulee for every meal. At some point, you got to have the meat and potatoes, and the meat and potatoes should be the normal, right? It is my prayer that as as I lead us through Scripture by the leading of the Holy Spirit, that you would be fed and ready. See, the feeding is not just to create fat sheep. I, I preached a sermon about that one time. Remember that? That was a while ago. I'm not feeding you to become fat sheep. I'm feeding you so that that will be the energy that moves you forward to share the good news of Christ with a world that desperately needs to know about him. Well, today, today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is difficult. You see, there is a flip side to expository preaching. The flip side is, I don't get to skip the hard ones. Today is a difficult passage of Scripture. Maybe one of the most difficult that we will ever find in the entire Bible. And I don't get to skip it because we're preaching all the way through. Lord God, as we open up your word today, it is, it is my prayer that you would speak through me to us. And Lord, I pray this So earnestly, may I speak not more, but also not less 
than what is in your word today. Amen. So, are you ready for something difficult? I hate Donald Trump. I hate frozen peas. I hate Joe Biden. There you go. It's balanced out again. That was a little bit of tension there just for a little while. (laughs) I hate the color yellow. I hate Vladimir Putin. I hate war. I hate alcoholism. I hate drunk driving. I hate sin. I hate death. And make no mistake about it, I hate the Minnesota Vikings. (laughs) That was like a roller coaster, wasn't it? (laughs) It was a roller coaster. What in the world are we getting into this morning, huh? Well, in case you didn't notice... The word hate is a strong word, is it not? But it's also, in case you didn't notice, I think you did, the word hate is a complicated word, isn't it? We all know this to be true because you understood the English words that I was saying out of my mouth only a few moments ago. You understood the words, didn't you? But you weren't just totally sure where I was going with that. And even though you understood the words, I hate, and then said something else, somehow didn't you know that you needed to take some of those less than others in some way? Or didn't you somehow know that when I say I hate frozen peas, it somehow means something different than I hate alcoholism? How did you know that? How did you know there was a difference between those things? Because it's the same words, isn't it? Right? Well, context helps, doesn't it? But it's even more than context, isn't it? Because the word hate is complicated. It's super complicated. Do you know why the word hate is so complicated? Because it is directly related to the most complicated word in the entire English language. Love. Hate is the opposite of love. And if love is the most complicated word in the English language, guess what hate is? It's either also number one or a close number two to the most complicated word in the English language. Context matters as we use the word hate, doesn't it? 
And we have to be careful with how we use this word, don't we? Please turn to Luke chapter 14. We're going to read verses 25 through 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, Long dramatic pause again. I've done that two Sundays in a row now, haven't I? Hate his father and mother? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if it has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or... Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my Disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. Wow. Lord, please give us ears to hear. Amen. What are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, let's start by remembering something about this section of Luke. If you remember from a number of sermons ago, I told you that the, the, the entire middle section of Luke, 10 whole chapters, from Luke chapter 9 until Luke chapter 19, Ten entire chapters are devoted to one thing, and that is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Everything that happens in these ten chapters, you have to, you have to keep in mind that the way Luke has structured his gospel is to say that these ten chapters all have as their context, as their background, that Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. Does anybody remember what happened in Jerusalem when he got there? Yeah. And of course, the entire last section of Luke is that last week, what happened in Jerusalem, right? So Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. 
Jesus knows what waits for him in Jerusalem. And all of his preaching, all of his teaching in these 10 chapters, Jesus has in the back of his mind that he is going there to suffer and die for us. Jesus wants them to know who's the them. Did you see verse 1 there, or verse 25? Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said. Again, it's so helpful to picture in your mind. Picture in your mind that you're part of the crowd. Imagine Jesus is traveling, and he, remember, he just came from a Pharisee's house for dinner, and now he's traveling again. And there's this large crowd, and you're part of that large crowd, and you're all just kind of shuffling behind him. I always picture like Forrest Gump when he's running across the United States. I don't know if that's helpful. Probably not. All right. So he, he's, he's like got this crowd of people and, and kind of like Forrest, you know, he just, he just stops. And, and he turns around. Everybody like, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? Right? Jesus turns around. He looks at this crowd. And he says, if any of you really want to come after me, if you, I mean, if you really want to follow me, you need to hate your mother and father. Can you imagine the, what did he just say? Did I hear that right? I'm supposed to do what? You see, Jesus is he's doing something here. And Luke is doing something here that's so interesting. Because there's double, there's double meaning in this. For, for those that were going to follow Jesus all the way to the end, do you understand? They were in danger. They were putting their families in danger by following Jesus. Do you understand that? You need to understand the ties that you have with your family and stuff. They are in danger if you follow me. You get that? You understand that? Because here's the problem. It is so difficult for us to get into this passage because we don't understand that it's dangerous to follow Jesus today. We don't get it. Because in our culture, well, at least for a while, maybe not as much now, but for many years, the easier thing to do was to be a Christian. That's how you fit in, right? It was those outcasts that weren't Christians, and they were shunned. Of course, that's changing now a little bit, isn't it, as our our culture moves away from Christ. And we're starting to feel just the first little bits that there's persecution involved with being a Christian. But it's just like, just barely started. I mean, we've barely even felt any real persecution. So when we read this, we don't get it. Like, Jesus is saying, you need to understand, you want to follow me? You want to be, you're this big crowd, you follow me to Jerusalem? You need to know what happens when we get there. Because it's going to be bad, and it's not just going to be bad for you. It's going to be bad for everybody that you're connected to. Like, your family's in danger if you follow me. Do you understand that? You better cut ties with them. They're in danger. That is the Lord speaking to us now to pay attention. 
So pay attention. Here's the deal. Jesus is not joking around. Jesus is not just saying it's going to be all cupcakes and raspberries when you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But hold on now. We're supposed to hate our parents? We're supposed to hate our parents? We're supposed to hate our parents? What in the world? What do we do with that? Well, let's look at it in context. And part of being in context when you read Scripture is you don't just take one verse out and read that verse without thinking about or considering the rest of Scripture, okay? So let's work through this process of going through exegesis so we can understand what it means for us. Okay, so first of all, take a look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Anybody know what that is? That's a commandment. That's, a, that's one of the ten commandments right there. It's number five. That's, a, that, that's the fifth commandment of the Lord in the book of Exodus chapter 20. And you know what's interesting? It's interesting to me, if you, if you go to Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and let's look at that. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, there's more to this story. This is the story of the rich young ruler, you know. And the rich young ruler then says, well, I do those things. And Jesus says, good, you're not far from the kingdom, right? But look at what he says to him. Jesus said, the, the, guy, the guy wants to know how to get right with God. Jesus' answer is this. And do you see what the last one is? He doesn't even quote all the Ten Commandments, but he does quote some of them, and he includes number five. Now, are you tracking with me? Because, because I, want you to, I want you to get this. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus literally tells someone seeking the kingdom, the way you do it is you honor your father and mother. Do you got that? So that does beg a question, doesn't it? It begs a question as we compare Mark 10 with Luke 14. You ready for the question? Is it possible to honor your father and mother and hate them at the same time? That is an interesting question. And if I would have started my sermon today with that question, I think you would have said, no. That would have been your immediate response. Well, no, that's stupid. Those things, are they don't fit together, right? They're not complementary. They're opposites, right? But now, if I ask you that question, you're not quite as sure as you would have been at the beginning of the sermon. So here you go. Pair share. Talk about it. Is it possible to honor your father and mother and hate them at the same time? Go. 
Well, that was one of the uh, less enthusiastic pair shares I've ever been a part of. Couldn't hear a lot. You guys were uh, hesitant to share your opinions on that one. And for good reason. For good reason. Because Jesus said both of them. What do we do with that? How can this be? Well, I would argue that Jesus, and by the way, this this is just from reading the letters on the page. You ready for this? Jesus said both. So we better wrestle with that, don't you think? Jesus said both. So I'm going to start from the position that both are correct. And I'm going to let the logic of the moment be spoken to by the Holy Spirit. So, we can honor our parents, and we should, while at the same time hating them. If that seems like a contradiction, it is. Well, at least on the surface. But let's do a little digging, and let's see if we can understand what Jesus is up to. And what Luke is up to. Okay, so, this all comes down to how Jesus is using the word hate in Luke 14. Now, remember I said you can hate frozen peas and you can hate war. So, I'm going to start with the suggestion that there is an extremely complex and wide range of the word hate. Is that a fair statement? Because if I can hate frozen peas... Which, by the way, I really do. So I don't like frozen peas. Like, I hate them. Okay? I love canned peas, but frozen peas? No. Okay? I hate frozen peas. And I can also say this. I hate war. I I do not like war. It is not a good thing. I also hate alcoholism. I've seen it thrash people's lives. People I care about deeply. I've seen it destroy people. I hate it. I hate it. So if I can hate frozen peas and hate alcoholism, it's okay to say there's a broad range in that term hate. Fair enough. Okay? Now, again, another way of understanding Scripture is we always must understand Scripture in light of Scripture. Okay, so let's, let's look at another place where Jesus uses the term hate in the same way he does in this one, and we're going to use it to try to understand and illuminate what Jesus is saying in Luke 14. So turn to Matthew chapter 6, okay, verse 24. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is, one little verse. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Hmm. Now, let me ask you something. Is Jesus teaching us in this passage that we should oppose the idea of money at all costs? In fact, should I just take... My, my, should, my, should my whole job be to gather dollar bills so that I can burn them publicly in front of the church? 
What, is, that, is that what Jesus is saying I should do? Because if I'm supposed to hate money, maybe what I should do is take every opportunity I can to destroy money. Don't you think? That's what hate means, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to not, I'm not going to earn any money. I'm just going to take all the money I can find. In fact, I'm going to personally invite people to join me as we go from store to store ransacking cash registers so that I can burn money in piles in Walmart. Who's with me? I hate money. So we're going to do a crusade against money. Who's with me? Anybody? Come on. Who wants to join me? We'll go right now to Walmart. We're, we're, I'm, skip Walmart. I'm going to Starbank. We are going to break into Starbank. We're going to find all of their money. We're going to burn it in a pile. Who's with me? It's the word of God after all. It's the word of God right there. We're supposed to hate money. Don't you trust the word of God? Don't you believe in the word of God? It says it right there. It's clear as day. Oh, context matters, does it? (laughs) Well, that's interesting, isn't it? What is Jesus saying here? This is is a little bit easier to understand than than the thing I just made it into, right? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If money is more important to you than God, you've got a problem. Don't you? Don't you? This is Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, saying money will take the place of priority in your life if you let it. The place that is reserved only for God. Jesus then uses that concept of setting priorities correctly, and he brings in two words that show the seriousness of this battle inside us. The two most powerful words in the human language, which of course are the two most complicated words as well, aren't they? Love and hate. Why would Jesus bring those two most important words into this conversation? And the answer is, of course, because it's the most important conversation. You cannot put anything above God. It's the most important conversation. And this is about comparisons. It's about, oh, here's a word. Allegiance. We are to be in, in a love relationship with the God of the universe. And our love of God must be, must be so much fuller, so much richer, and so much more important than our relationship with money that when the two relationships are placed side by side, our relationship with God is so much more that our relationship with money actually looks like hate. It's a comparison where the one is so much greater than the other as to be off the charts different. And of course, 
Go back to Luke 14, and what do we find? Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What's Jesus' point in this saying? Pair share. What's the point? Go ahead. That one should have been easier. God must be your priority. Successful discipleship requires Jesus to be the priority of your life. Okay, there's a churchy word, discipleship. Disciple. The word disciple uh, in Greek, mathetes, uh, I believe it was, is what it is. It means follower. So discipleship is the act of following. So to follow Jesus, and notice Jesus is literally on the way to Jerusalem, talking to a group of people that are literally following him. Okay? And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, I've got to be number one. And the next closest is number 57 million. Did you get that? This is about priorities. Every other thing in your life, your money, your family, and notice it even says your own life. Your own life is nothing compared to your, the priority of God. Your own life. And then Jesus says these parables. I want to read them again because they're powerful. Look at these parables. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Have you ever thought about God as an advancing army that you cannot stand against? And have you ever considered that maybe you should sue for terms of peace as he approaches? That's another way of thinking about human life. Have you made peace with God? And as I read this, I mean, like literally, you are at war with him because if you do not Except Jesus. You are literally at war with God. And you are going to lose. 
That's, that's, you don't have the resources to beat him. The great thing is he doesn't want to be at war. <laughs> that's the great thing. He offers us peace, but you have to be willing to enter into the peace process. That's a different way of talking about Christian salvation. Did you hear that? But it's totally applicable, isn't it? I mean, think about that. Are you, are you willing to enter into the peace process? I hope so. And now, we're gonna, I just want to turn this corner and we're going to be done. Because I think this is, this is important. This is application time for what Christians today need, need to consider, okay? Because I think in this passage, Jesus challenges us on numerous levels that we are not prepared to be challenged by as the modern church today, okay? Here's one of the challenges, and here's something that I'm, I don't even know how to even get my brain wrapped around it. We are so concerned about presenting the things of God in a way that is palatable. You know, the the person who sent me that devotional had no idea that that devotional also spoke directly into what we're talking about in Luke 14. We are so concerned about making sure people think Jesus is nice. And we want to make sure people don't get offended when we talk about Jesus, right? We want to make sure that, that, you know, it's... it's good news, right? And it is good news. There's like this tightrope that we have to walk. Like, this is really good news about Jesus. I mean, I just preached a funeral sermon here. I just, I've mentioned it a couple of times. Just on Friday, I preached a funeral sermon. You know what that funeral sermon, you know what I want to do? I want to present the good news of Jesus Christ. I even did the thing where I, I said, what's the word gospel mean? And I, I made him define it. If you were there, I actually did the same thing I do here. I made him define I said, gospel is good news. I said that as part of my funeral sermon. And so, as I'm presenting the good news, as I'm presenting salvation as a gift that you can receive, it is super easy, and this is where the tightrope is, it is super easy as as we present that good news that we fail to present what Jesus is saying in this passage today. It is absolutely good news. That salvation comes from Jesus Christ. And it absolutely requires you complete commitment. That's the part we leave out. That's the part we leave out. Because if we can just get them to make a decision, if we can just get them to say the prayer of salvation, then we did it. Yay! Is that what Jesus is teaching us in Luke 14, 25-35? Yes or no? No! The goal is not to just get people to meekly say a prayer. If you've said the prayer, could you please, all eyes closed, all eyes closed, put your hand up, just like this. Don't let anybody see you. Oh, I see you there. Oh, I see you there. Oh, the Lord will honor that. That drives me insane! Like, this is about counting the cost. You're giving your whole life to this. Like, this this isn't a time to have your eyes closed. This is a time to say, I give my life to Jesus Christ, and I want everybody to know I'm not living for myself anymore. I'm done with that. It's garbage. I'm turning away from that. I am done. I'm a follower of Jesus. I am sold out. He's my king. I am his subject. I will do whatever I need to do to follow Jesus Christ. And that even includes being embarrassed at a youth leader meeting. Right? I I hate that. 
At IYC, they did that one year, and I almost wrote a strongly worded email. It's, it's frustrating to me because we, in our, in our goal to try to like be super pleasing to everybody and not offend anybody, we've lost the gospel when we do that. The gospel isn't pleasant. It's not this thing you can just add on to your life like a little extra, right? Well, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm a worker and I'm a dad and I'm, I'm a... I'm a I'm a person in the community, and I serve on this, and I serve on that. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, too. False. False. Are we going to say it loud enough? How loud do we need to say this? You don't add your faith in Jesus on top of what you're already doing. Jesus is your Lord, your King. Everything else is second. And if you don't do that, it's going to be impossible for you to follow Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Can I, let me use churchy words. You will fail as a disciple of Christ. You will fail as a disciple unless you give Christ your all. Discipleship is impossible halfway. Do you know... Churches that want to present a very easy gospel that's just, just say the prayer, get your ticket to heaven, it's all going to be great. You know, you can get a lot of people doing that. You can. Do you want to know how else? We could fill up this church right now. Next Sunday, I could have every chair full. Do you want to know how? Want to know how? I just tell everybody I'll give them a hundred bucks if they show up. Does that make it right? Does that make it helpful? Because they would fill up the chairs. Should we do that? Should we just print flyers? $100 bill. If anybody that shows up, $100 bill. Should we do it? Is that a good idea? <laughs> yeah, I heard a yeah from over there. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I like that. <laughs> yeah, 500 bucks for just one family. I like that. That's a good idea. It's not difficult to present an easy gospel and think people are going to show up, but you know... It's not the gospel anymore. The good news of Jesus is that he wants to save you, but it requires everything that you are in return. And we have for too long been focusing on the he wants to save you part and completely ignoring and he requires everything that you are part. Because we're so concerned about getting butts in these chairs. I am not concerned about getting butts in chairs. I'm concerned about preaching the word of God. And God will take care of the chairs. And not everybody followed Jesus. You know what happened when he did that? A whole bunch of that big crowd went, I'm tapping out of that. <laughs> right? And when they actually got to Jerusalem, and it actually was difficult, you know what they did? I'm tapping out of that. Right? Even the disciples, even Peter was like, I don't know him. Right? Because it's difficult to follow Jesus. It costs you everything. It's not halfway. It's not three quarters of the way. Jesus requires that he is your priority 
even over your family. And let me tell you what, that is not a very fun message to preach in Bertha, Minnesota. Because family's real important. And don't mess with deer hunting. Because that's a family thing. You expect me to come to church on deer hunting Sunday? I mean, I'm with my family. That's super important. Can I just have a, a deer hunting time? I just want to walk around with Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14, verses 25 to 35. But very few of you would see the sign. Come on, guys. It's okay for me to get a little bit like that because it's what Jesus did, right? Come on. Deer hunting is not the priority. Your family's not the priority. Jesus Christ is a priority. And everything that you've made the priority, whatever it is, politics or whatever it is, your stance on COVID or I whatever you've made the priority, stop. Stop. Come back to Jesus. You can't be a disciple unless you put him first. You can't do it. And that's not me talking. I'm just reading it from Christ himself. That's the truth. May the truth set us free. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. It is our prayer that we give you all of us. It is our prayer, God, that somehow your people rise up and recognize what you have said to us. These are hard words, Lord, because we love our family. We love our parents, our spouses, our children. And we are supposed to honor our parents. We're supposed to love our wife, our husband. We're supposed to care for our kids. But it's got to be with you as the priority. Thank you for this reminder in this difficult passage of Scripture of who we are supposed to be. May we strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to be that people. And the kingdom of God will be moved forward as we recognize you as king. In Jesus' name, amen.